everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome, 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 welcome. Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. We are so excited to be here today. And of course, want to encourage everyone to like the stream. If you're watching, you probably like it. There are probably some of you out there who are hate watching. And to those of you, I say thank you for the views. But to everyone else, I say like the stream, subscribe so you don't miss these streams that we're doing. Also, you can become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And you get bonus episodes and extended interviews. And for this week, it's a really good one. It's a chat I had with Gabor Mate. People may know about Gabor Mate because of his writing on trauma and addiction. And of course, that is one of the things he's very well known for. But he also is someone who was born in Budapest, a Jewish person born in Budapest during the Holocaust. And he was given to a Christian family for a bit. And he talks to me about that and why that experience makes him someone who supports human rights for Palestinians. It's a really interesting interview. And you don't want to miss that. And that's going to be mostly Patreon. So you can find that at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. We're releasing that this week. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. And yes, Gabor does happen to be the father of Aaron Buzzsaw Mate, as he is called for his tireless work, debunking Russiagate. And we have a great show for you. We have two amazing guests. We have Ali Abu Nima, who's from the Electronic Intifada. And then we have Ariel Gold. And they're going to be talking about Israel and Palestine what's happening in those regions. There's always a lot to talk about and there's always a lot to talk about that's not covered because as we know, the media either ignores that or misrepresents it. So before we get to our guests, I just want to do a little segment called And Now for Some Goodish News, which is when we look at kind of good pieces of news, good nuggets, but they're kind of within bad pieces of news on a macro level, but whatever. We take the good news wherever we can find it. So, and now for some goodish news. A British judge ruled that Julian Assange can appeal his extradition. Of course, Assange shouldn't be in prison at all. He's been there for over a thousand days. He's been in the Belmarsh High Security Prison in London for over a thousand days. He suffered a stroke there. And it's a little complicated, but basically he initially won his extradition case when a British judge ruled he couldn't be extradited because of his own mental health and well-being and safety. Basically, this ruling acknowledged that the U.S. prison industrial system is unsafe for people. So ironically, he was kind of given a bit of a save from that. But then the Biden administration, because again, I want to remind everyone that Biden sides with Trump when it comes to Assange. He's prosecuting Trump. Obama stopped. But Biden has decided to take a page out of Trump's book. So the Biden administration appealed the ruling and argued it would give certain assurances that Assange would not be subjected to something called Special Administrative Measures, or SAMs, which is a secretive form of extreme isolation in U.S. federal prisons. Now, what's pathetic is that the Justice Department didn't say he would never be placed under SAMs. They just said he wouldn't start off there. So like by default, he won't be basically tortured, but that could change whenever they want to. So as Estella Morris, Julian Assange's partner says, those assurances are not worth the paper they're written on. And this is what Stella Morris has to say about the latest development. The high court 
certified that we had raised a point of law of general public importance and that the Supreme Court has good grounds to hear this appeal. The situation now is that the Supreme Court has to decide whether it will hear the appeal, but make no mistake, we won today in court. So that's a little piece of good news. All right. Some more, and now for some goodish news. In Guatemala, five former paramilitary soldiers have been convicted of crimes against humanity and sentenced to decades in prison for sexually assaulting dozens of indigenous Achi women in the 1980s. The women were unable to file criminal complaints until 2011. The patrol, which raped the women and girls and disappeared all the men in the village, was made up of several armed groups recruited by Guatemala's U.S.-backed army. And in Iowa... Prosecutors have dismissed a case against Matt Johnson, an animal rights activist and member of the group Direct Action Everywhere. In 2020, he secretly filmed and then released footage of hundreds of pigs being killed at two plants owned by major pork producer Select Farms. The company was unable to send the pigs to slaughterhouses because of COVID. They were closed. So they killed the pigs by shutting down ventilation in their barns and overheating them. So that's the good news there, again, is that the case against him was dismissed. And shout out to Matt Johnson for uh, December of 2020, posing as the CEO of the pork giant Smithfield Foods and getting on Fox Business Channel and punking them and saying, as if he were someone from Smithfield Foods, our industry poses a serious threat in effectively bringing on the next pandemic, with CDC data showing that three of four infectious diseases come from animals and the conditions inside of our farms can sometimes be Petri dishes for new diseases. Hog farming also causes immense harm to our air and waterways. So those were our, and now for some goodish news or our goodish news is of the week. So with that behind us, I'm so excited to be bringing on our first guest. Ali Abunima is the director of the Electronic Intifada, an independent nonprofit publication focusing on Palestine. He is also the author of One Country, a bold proposal to end the Israeli-Palestinian impasse and the book, the Battle for Justice in Palestine. So, Ali, welcome. Hi, Katie. How are you? Good. You? I'm doing all right. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a little while. It has been, yeah. The last time we spoke, when was that? Last? It was definitely 2020. 2007, I think. Yeah, 2007. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like it. It feels like it. Yes, it yeah. was. I think it was within the last 12 months, but it was it feels like forever because so much has changed. And yet things remain the same at the same time, especially, I think, in this region of the world. And we can get into that. But one of the things I want to ask you about is, you know, as someone who runs this amazing publication, which keeps track of so many news stories in Palestine, news stories that are either misrepresented or just altogether ignored. I want to ask you what the stories that you think are the most important that are happening right now that you want people to know about. Gosh, in ter- in, you mean in terms of what's happening in Palestine or in... Either in Palestine or around the occupation resistance. Right. Well, I mean, you, like you say, there's so much going on in the region. I mean, let's just like step back and look what is happening right now uh, uh, with... The drumbeat, like, first of all, this completely crazy idea that Russia is about to invade Ukraine. And you know it's crazy because the Ukrainian government is saying, guys, chill out. That's that's not going to happen. You know, yesterday, um, the U.S. ordered... the family members of its diplomats to leave the to leave Kiev, the Ukrainian capital, supposedly because you know, Russian invasion is imminent. 
And the Ukrainian government said this is completely premature and unnecessary. The Ukrainian government said that. But there is this just complete drumbeat for, like, for I guess, World War III, right? Because that's what war with Russia would be, a, la- a land war in Europe. I mean, I grew up in the 1980s living in Europe. And the fear at that time was, you know, a land war in Europe uh, leading to a nuclear exchange. And, you know, Ronald Reagan at the time, it was like, oh, it's no big deal because we can probably limit the nuclear exchange to just Europe. And, um, you know, we may not even have to have like a nuclear exchange which destroys the United States or Russia. We could just nuke Europe and that would be... That was the idea, limited nuclear war. And, but that seems to have faded for a while, and now it's back. But it is uh, the so-called West and, uh, you know, the uh, military, indu- sorry to use this old phrase, the military-industrial think tank complex, which, uh, which is, of course, bipartisan completely, because it is the Democrats who, more than anyone, have been like, um, you know, creating the, this Russian bogeyman to scare people for the past uh, a few years. And today we see um, the United States shipping huge quantities of weapons to Ukraine, you know, javelin missiles, and I don't know what, you know, huge plane loads of, of weapons going to Ukraine to the Ukrainian military, which uh, has officially incorporated the Azov Battalion, who are literal goose-stepping Nazis. So the U.S. is arming Nazis in Ukraine. Who knows where those javelin missiles will end up? And in the so what I'm saying with all this, I mean that's all bad enough in its own right. But like, we're here we are getting ready for the next war, a proxy war, while the wars that um, uh, the Democrats uh, started uh, last time they were in the White House are still raging. So we've seen uh, in the past few days uh, the. Um, uh, you know, intensified bombing of in Yemen, already a country which has been destroyed by five years since, by, by, uh, in the seven years, I think in 2015, when Joe Biden and Barack Obama greenlighted the destruction of uh, Yemen by uh, the uh, local proxies, uh, the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, uh, a, a genocidal war that's uh, ongoing and is not making headlines in the United States uh, because we're bored of that. We're on to we want to, to get on to the next war because child starvation is boring. Not it's very boring sexy. and yeah, and it's it's uh, so that's just like uh, it's just the the American empire is just completely out of out of control. Or maybe it's not. This is what it's supposed to do. But in that context, of course, the situation in Palestine is, I hate to be boring, but more of the same. You know, more apartheid, uh, more destruction of Palestinian homes, more theft of Palestinian land, uh, more um, killing of Palestinians, uh, young, old, 
uh, more jailing of, of Palestinians, uh, uh, for you know, the taking of political prisoners. Uh, and I guess that's that's not also not a very uh, sexy headline uh, because it's been going on for decade after decade uh, after decade. Uh, you know, more siege in Gaza, which, uh, you know, where two million people are basically kept in a cage and separated from the outside world by Israel. Um, so uh, that's why the Electronic Intifada, uh, our publication, exists, because these stories have to be told. And um, although there is a little bit more mainstream discussion in the U.S. and it, it has become more of a, an issue in American politics, uh, it's, uh, I, I feel like if, we, if independent media aren't out there telling, it's the same with Julian Assange, who you just talked about. I mean, the reason I know what is happening with Julian Assange is because of independent journalists like... Uh, uh, Kevin Gostola, who's been covering this from the beginning, others too. But, you know, that's how I know what's happening with Julian Assange. You certainly wouldn't know from, like, the New York Times. Absolutely. So this is the world we live in, where to get the, what's really, ha you know, to learn what the government wants you to think, you turn to the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN. To learn what's actually happening, you have to turn to um, independent media or foreign sources. And the irony of that is, I mentioned the 1980s, you know, when the, the idea was, oh, you know, the big bad Soviet Union, the people there uh, can't get the truth from their media. So, you know, the, the, the good old uh, USA has to beam in Radio Free Europe to so that so that th those uh, oppressed Soviets can learn the truth, and it's like that's the situation Americans are in. Of course, you know there's twenty four twenty four seven so called news channels, but you you don't actually get any news. You don't get any analysis. Turn on any cable channel now, and it's the same talking points, the same drumbeat for war and escalation with uh, Russia and yeah so welcome to 2022 it's not it's not the future that we dreamed of in uh, in the 1980s the one thing we did think we would have by 2022 is like video phones and watches where you can talk on the video and we actually have that but yeah. I, I think that's about it that's, that's about where the progress is. that that's that's all we got of the of the future vision that uh, we hoped for. Right. Well, one of the stories that has somewhat penetrated Western media is the story. Uh, it's it's extremely disturbing, and it's the story of a Palestinian American, Omar Assad, who was seventy eight years old. He died after being detained, bound, and gagged by Israeli troops in the West Bank. I think we probably wouldn't have heard about that at all had he not been Palestinian-American. He lived in Milwaukee for part of his life. But can you tell people about this story and also about the response by the United States to this story? Yeah. It's a horrible, horrible tragedy. You know, I, I think of Omar Assad and he could, he could be 
my dad or my uncle or, you know, he, he, is, he is someone that, that uh, any of us could identify with. And uh, he was um, at family, you know, out with family. Palestinians often stay, you know, stay up very late. And I know you do because I'm always telling you, like, I, I'm happy to come <laughs> on your show, show, but not yeah. after 9 p.m. Right. Yeah. Uh, but so it's I'm, my, it's I'm part of my solidarity. Actually. Yeah, I'm not typical in that sense. Right. But um, you know, so apparently this this was on January 11th. He was coming home very late, uh, around 2 a.m. from a relative's house, and this is in his uh, village of Jaljulia near Ramallah in the occupied West Bank, and he was just randomly stopped by Israeli soldiers, uh, taken out of his car. It's a 78-year-old man, uh, uh, bound and blindfolded and beaten. And uh, it it appears he had a, a heart attack and he collapsed and he was left for dead. You know, the soldiers left him there and he was found later by family members who, who were wondering where he was. They didn't. The the, the uh, soldiers who did this to him didn't try to help him. They didn't call an ambulance. They didn't try to save his life. They just left him for dead. Uh, and this is a man who, um, as you mentioned, had spent many years uh, raising his family in Milwaukee, uh, in in Wisconsin. Uh, you know, I suppose in some ways the the archetypical. American immigrant dream. He he uh, was able to do well enough, and uh, about a decade ago, returned home to Palestine to 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 you know to live his uh, later life in his country uh, where that he you know loved to be in. And this is how he died. And you're absolutely right. But for the fact that he was also a U.S. citizen, I don't think it would have penetrated the mainstream media here. The U.S. response has been to make some statements of concern and, you know, to ask Israel to investigate. And you'd say, well, okay, that's not so bad. But uh, it's, um, it's, it's a joke. And the U.S. government knows it's a joke because uh, Israel's self-investigations ex- ex- self always, always, always result in, oh, yeah, uh, no crime was committed here, nothing to see, the case is closed. And I'm not exaggerating. I mean, since 1979, the, the Palestinian Human Rights Group, the oldest Palestinian human rights group, Al-Haq, documents all these things. Since 1979, there have been, I think, uh, I think it was, it's less than five. It's less than five. I can't remember it's two or three. Uh, but since 1979, there have been less than five uh, cases of uh, Israeli personnel being uh, criminally charged and convicted for killing or injuring Palestinians who they occupy and who they rule. And this is an, a, peri- a period where just since 2000, Israel has killed more than 12,000 Palestinian civilians, uh, thousands of children, and none of these cases invo- uh, result in any kind of accountability. Uh, 
Israel murdered more than 200 unarmed civilians in Gaza in 2018 during the Great March of Return, sending snipers to kill unarmed civilians with orders to kill unarmed civilians. Nobody was was charged or convicted. And in a way, that makes sense because they were doing what they were ordered to do. So it's a complete joke for the U.S. to ask for an, ask Israel to carry out an investigation. Uh, the U.S. knows very well that that's an empty gesture that that plays well in a headline. Oh, the U.S. is asking for an explanation of how this American was killed. But the U.S. knows very well, the U.S. government knows very well that, that, that Israel can't investigate itself, and that can never lead to justice. Right. We have a clip of Ned Price talking about this. And imagine the outrage, by the way. Just imagine if something like this had happened, uh, there was a report on something like this happening in Russia. This would be grounds for war. Uh, we can confirm uh, the death of a U.S. citizen, Omar Assad, uh, in, in a, a city near Ramallah. Uh, we have been in touch with Mr. Assad's family to express our condolences about this tragedy. Uh, we're providing, as you would expect, all appropriate consular assistance to uh, the family at this time. Uh, we've also been in touch with the government, government of Israel to seek clarification about this incident. Uh, and uh, as you may have seen, the Israeli Defense Forces have indicated there's an ongoing investigation into the matter, uh, and we support a thorough investigation into the circumstances uh, of this incident. Incident. Yeah. So. Yeah. And then, and then he says, he says, the circumstances, an investigation of the circumstances. He doesn't say that, uh, he doesn't even say that uh, there should be any accountability. Right. That those who did this should be held accountable. So he doesn't even make that gesture. And the thing for people to know is this is a near daily occurrence. It's, uh, it's, it's not even that rare for elderly Palestinians to be killed. There have been cases in the past year or two of you know, elderly couples who have been just driving in their cars and, uh, and, and they get shot at. There was a case last year of a man driving home with his children in a, 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 also a village near Ramallah They'd been shopping. He had his son in the back seat, and Israeli soldiers randomly opened fire on his car and killed his kid in the back seat. No charges, no investigation, no accountability. Uh, it, it, it's a near daily occurrence. Children are killed, elderly are killed, and no, no accountability. What does that mean in effect? If there's a certain population that can be killed with impunity, what does that mean? It means that they have no right to life. Palestinians have no right to life under Israeli rule, under Zionism. They have no right to life. And of course, we don't want it a situation where, oh, yeah, there's accountability, so it's fine. We want them to stop killing us. We want Israel. Why are Israeli soldiers in Palestinian towns and villages? Why are Palestinians under occupation? Why is this going on decade after decade after decade? Because Palestinians are not free. They live under apartheid. They live under a racist system that says uh, that uh, Jews are worth more than Palestinians. That's the essence of Zionism, that Jews have more right to this land than the indigenous people of that land. And it's, a claim, it's also a claim, a typical settler colonial claim, that actually folks from Montreal or 
London or Brooklyn. South Africa are, are more indigenous to Palestine than the people who actually live there and have been living there continuously for generations. So I get, you know, it's like I'm outraged. My outrage is refreshed every morning when I wake up because it's agony to see this day after day. And we shouldn't get used to it. I, I'm, I'm incapable of getting used to it, which is why I'm doing this work. When There, there, might, there might have been many other things I, I would like to do, but I'm fortunate that I can do this work and draw attention to it because I, I can't get used to this every day. And then there's the, those are the more dramatic, lethal life and death instances. And I know that as of January 19th, six Palestinians have been killed through random, well, I, I was going to say random acts of violence, but they're not because they're state sponsored. They're part of the program. But then there's also just kind of the daily humiliation, deprivation, exploitation. And, and the daily destruction. I mean, Almost every day, you know, Israel is smart. You know, when they want to take over a Palestinian neighborhood in Jerusalem, they don't go in and do it all at once. You know, they don't go in on, on you know, Wednesday and demolish 100 houses at the same time because that will generate unwanted international attention. They do it house by house, street by street, and they wear Palestinians down. You know, they make it impossible. If you're a Palestinian in your native Jerusalem, you're not, it's impossible for you to get a permit to build a house on your own land, land your family may have owned for uh, generations. I mean, I, I'm, I'm my family is experiencing this right now, not in Jerusalem. We can't, I've, I've, I tweeted about this a couple of weeks ago. My uh, father's family is from a village in the West Bank called Batir, south of Jerusalem, uh, it's actually a UNESCO World Heritage Site. You can look it up because uh, it's been continuously uh, farmed. It has this incredible irrigation system, this terrace, ancient irrigation system that goes back 2,000 years that the people there, the people of Batir, including my family, still tend and still look after. And uh, about three weeks ago... Uh, uh, one of my cousins showed up at a piece of land we have uh, and have had for generations. We have Ottoman uh, records for it. He showed up. It's an area where we have olive trees planted and found a notice from the Israeli army saying that uh, we have 45 days to vacate the land and that we are illegally occupying the land. So... That's something I can attest to, but that's not, we're not special. This is something that is happening to Palestinians across uh, the occupied West Bank every single day. So what is your family doing? Yeah, no, what, so what are we doing? There is a legal process. We have lawyers looking into it. Uh, I don't want to say too much about okay. that, yeah. but I will say that you're dealing, you know, you're dealing with you're under military occupation, so you, you, you're going to courts that are not there to provide you justice. They're there to justify the crimes of the occupier. So you are put in a position where it's like you may well have to go through the process simply so as not to relinquish your rights, but you, you don't, you're not going to any kind of uh, court which is part of a, a fair system. It's occupier's justice. Right. It's a military occupation. 
but what do you do? Do you let them take the land without a fight, or do you try to fight? But that's the dilemma that every Palestinian uh, is in. And in Jerusalem, this morning, uh, they, the Israelis demolished a home, a family home in a tour, and put a family uh, out on the street. A couple of days ago, they did the same in Sheikh Jarrah. And they can get away with it because the U.S. is happy with, you know, the U.S. doesn't do anything. We, we're happy. You know, uh, even some of our so-called progressives are voting to give Israel, the Israeli military more money. The European Union is doing, you know, is fine with it. Right. Even some of the Arab dictatorships that uh, clients of the United States are, uh, you know, uh, embracing Israel, the Saudis, the Emiratis, uh, others. So what's the, ince- what's the incentive for Israel to stop doing this to us? Um, the particular land uh, that I'm talking about, it's near Batir, but it's not on the terraces. Okay. But... It is an area of, of land that is, uh, in fact, the whole area, the whole village is surrounded by Israeli settlements. So, you know, you have, you know, like any other Palestinian village in the West Bank, any time the Israelis could, could show up and establish or expand another settlement. So there's nothing, you know, there's nothing unique. I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say this to say, oh, you know, uh, I'll apply to somehow. No, this is what, any Palestinian can go through any time. So it's literally, you know, you can be killed with impunity, your land can be taken with impunity, your home can be demolished with impunity, and that's the reality. And it's a slow grind, year after year, day after day, month after month, and that's why Israel gets away with it, because it's like, yeah, well, it's just, it's just one more house. But it's one house and another house and another house day after day, week after week, month after month, and all of a sudden, there goes the neighborhood, whole Palestinian neighborhood in Jerusalem, demolished, depopulated, and new settlements put in its place. Is there still, like, are you hopeful? Because something we saw last year with the demolitions was that there was resistance. I heard you talking about this with Ronnie Kallick, the kind of universalization of resistance uh, among Palestinians. It wasn't just Shejarak, but we saw uprisings in Gaza. Is that still going on, that kind of solidarity across different geographical regions? Yeah. Rania Khalik and I did this really nice discussion uh, a couple of weeks ago, talking, kind of doing a review of the last year in a way. And uh, I guess the point, you know, I, I, I mean, I hope people go watch that too, because uh, Rania does great work, and it, it was I think it was a great discussion. But the kind of the big picture point we were making was that in 2021, I think it, it, was, it was a horrible year uh, for Palestinians in so many ways, like you know, every year since 1948 and, and before. Um, but it was also in many ways exhilarating and a turning point because, when Israel launched this uh, major assault on the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in Jerusalem to try to carry out, you know, its its uh, program of ethnic cleansing in in Sheikh Jarrah, um, the uh, Palestinians across the country fought back from Gaza, in Jerusalem, in the West Bank, in Israel. Palestinians fought back, and. Uh, and they have a right to fight back. And, and that was one of the points I, I, I made is that, 
you know, Palestinians have a right to resist. Like, it's so mainstream. Resistance is mainstream. Like, you know, supposedly now it's like, uh, you know, Ukraine is about to be uh, invaded. It's not going to be invaded by Russia. Uh, but, you know, there have been all these puff pieces in the New York Times and NPR about, about, you know, ordinary Ukrainians going to train in case their country is occupied so they can join the resistance. Uh, so it's so mainstream and celebrated. But when it comes to Palestinians, for some reason, they're not allowed to resist or it's illegitimate. So the point I'm making is Palestinian resistance is legitimate. And right now, the only thing I would say stopping Israel from doing worse or doing more of what it's doing is Palestinian resistance. Palestinians have a right to resist. They have a right to armed resistance against military occupation. And that doesn't make them special. That makes them just like everybody else. Right. But apparently if it's violent or it's anti-Semitic, if it's nonviolent. Well, anything Palestinians do, according to Israel and its lobby, is by definition anti-Semitic. Existing is anti-Semitic as far as they're concerned. For Palestinians to exist... In fact, for Palestinians to be born is, is in some ways considered anti-Semitic because uh, Israelis commonly describe Palestinians as a so-called demographic threat. So the mere birth of Palestinians is a threat to the Jewish state. And there's really, I wouldn't say no other populations, but I can think of very few contemporary situations where you can talk about an entire you know, ethnic group or entire national group as being a threat just because they exist and they and, and women have babies. But that's common talk in Israel, talk about Palestinians. I'm going to start calling Orthodox Jews a demographic threat to Palestinians. They have a lot of kids. No, I, 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 you know, I know you're saying that in jest, but I, yeah. I you know, I don't want to even say that in jest because... That language to me is... It gets you a little eugenicist. It's so abhorrent. It, it's, it's genocidal language yeah. when, when you talk about a population as, as being a, a demographic threat. But what, it, what is a threat, what, well, it, it's not a threat, it's a reality, is, is the continued forcing of Palestinians off their land. And, and what's going on today is what has been continue, happening continuously for... We're getting on to almost eight decades now, and and that's that's horrible when you think about like someone like uh, Omar Assad, who is seventy eight years old. He's older than the state of Israel, and and look how he died. Instead of living a di a dignified life as an elder, as someone who'd raised a family, as someone who supported his family, who was respected in his village, respected as an elder, he was dragged from his car, bound and gagged, probably by kids who are 18 or 19 years old, beaten up and left for dead. And he's older than the state that they're allegedly defending. And I was actually surprised. There was some condemnation of settlers, and I couldn't believe that some of this was coming from the Anti-Defamation League, which of course is not an Anti-Defamation League. It's just an organization that accuses anyone who criticizes Israel of being anti-Semite and an organization that serves to stifle dissent or criticism of Israel and uh, attempt to criminalize it like it does, tries to do with BDS. But can you explain that, this kind of surprise move by the ADL? Yeah. Gosh, how long do we have? I don't know. <laughs> 
Five hours. No. <laughs> so, I mean, the thing about the ADL is it's, it's such an insidious organization because it, it is, its primary purpose is it's an Israel lobby group. It exists to police speech about Israel, primarily in the United States, but in some other countries too. And it does this by masquerading as a civil rights organization. So it, you know, it, 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 it does multi-faith stuff and multi-ethnic stuff, but its bread and butter is defending an apartheid regime that brutally murders Palestinians without consequence. And that's a very tricky um, uh, line to walk when you also want to appear as this fuzzy civil rights organization that, you know, uh, fights for, uh, you know, uh, fights against racism in the United States and, uh, you know, uh, supports other communities when they're under attack. And it's particularly tricky because uh, so much of the, the Jewish community in the United States is disgusted with Israel, particularly the younger generation. That's something we could do a whole show on, but it's it's like, you know, poll after poll, survey after survey shows that, you know, American Jews, particularly younger Jews, are just disgusted in uh, with with what Israel is doing. I think there was a poll last year that said, like, I think it was 40% of uh, American Jews, I think under age 34 or 35, said Israel was an apartheid state, and a third of them said Israel was committing genocide against the Palestinians. I mean, that surprised me, Yeah, you know, e- even. So how if you're the ADL, you have to kind of try to make some gesture to say, you know, we're not completely the bad guys. So that's the context in which the ADL with a bunch of other groups came out and made the statement, I think, today or yesterday, saying, oh, Israel has to do something about the rampant settler violence where these land-thieving settlers in the West Bank are every day attacking Palestinians, stoning them, burning their crops, murdering, you know, killing their, killing their livestock, uh, destroying their tree, you know, just... And the, killing the, the individuals. Killing, killing individuals. So, and I think what prompted it was like one of these settlers uh, actually injured uh, someone from this group called Rabbis for Human Rights, which is this group that protests the Israeli occupation, protests Israeli settlements. So, I mean, it, it wasn't even like the violence against Palestinians that upset the ADL. Like they had to wait until a Jewish person was injured by the settlers before they could say anything. But basically, it's, uh, as far as the ADL is concerned, it's simply damage control. But the important thing to understand about the settlers, because the ADL is portraying them as if, look, you know, these are some rogue extremists who have got a little out of hand and we need, you know, the responsible Israeli government, you know, the adults in the room to come in and and rein them in. But that's not how settler colonialism works. You know, the settlers are the are an arm of the state. The settlers uh, would not be in the West Bank without the protection of the Israeli army, without the resources from the Israeli state, and they are there in order to um, to to implement the Israeli state's 
colonization policy. So it's it's kind of like, you know, when what would be the I'm trying to think of a U.S. equivalent for this. It's kind of it's like yeah, it's like it's the few bad apples. Right. Basically, you know, there's no problem of police violence and impunity in this country. It's just a few bad apples. And that's kind of an equivalent of, you know, I'm not saying that. That's, I'm being sarcastic. Yeah, of course. You're saying that's a, a, a rough equivalent of the argument. Yeah, that's a rough equivalent of it. And that's what the ADL is doing. And it's no coincidence, of course, that the ADL, behind its, um, you know, fuzzy, we're a civil rights group and we sing Kumbaya with everyone, for decades, they have been sending officers from police forces all over the United States, from every big city and many medium and small size cities across the United States, they have been sending them to Israel for training and to say, and, and to showcase Israel as the example for U.S. police to follow. That's who the ADL is. Great documentary called Defamation. Did you see that documentary? Did we talk about that? Yeah. Oh, it's such a good film. It's such a good film. It's, a, um, it's, it's actually by a, a I think an Israeli director, yeah, Israeli Jewish guy who who goes to the ADL and they assume that he's pro ADL because he's a Jewish guy from Israel and he's making this documentary and they totally let down their guard. Yeah, and you see how they they weaponize anti semitism. They turn like everything that happens into an alleged incident of anti semitism. I mean, there's this scene where because of course the constant drumbeat from the ADL and other Israel lobby groups is oh. Anti-Semitism, it's like at historic highs. And I don't want to minimize, you know, we have to be serious about any kind of uh, racism or bigotry against anyone. And there have been horrific uh, anti-Jewish attacks in recent years. I mean, there was the event, the the, the hostage-taking in Colleyville, Texas, in the, in the synagogue there just, you know, a week a week ago, which was horrible. And thank goodness that you know, no one other than the, the hostage taker was injured in that case. But before that, we had the, the massacre in Pittsburgh in 2018 at the Tree of Life. We had the, the killings a few, uh, six months later, exactly at the Poe Synagogue in California. And there have been other incidents. The Jews will not replace us, Heather Heyer. Yes. It wasn't Jewish, but it was, yeah, anti-Semitic violence. And what's the key point here is that the vast majority of this is coming from the white supremacist right. But you, you, t- you look at the ADL and you look at other Israel lobby groups, and they are pretending that there is this massive problem of anti-Semitism on the left. Oh, they're both sizing it. Yes, on the one hand, uh, you know, people are walking, you know, Nazis are walking into synagogues and massacring people. But on the other hand, a Jewish student was made to feel uncomfortable by a uh, lecture hosted by Students for Justice in Palestine on their campus. They're trying to both sides this and, of course, to falsely equate anti-Jewish bigotry with support for Palestinian rights. That's what they do. But, yeah, defamation. You asked about defamation. I think Avi Mughrabi is the name of the filmmaker, if I'm correct. And I think the film's like more than 10 years old, but it's still... Yeah, it's from someone from 2009, yeah. Yeah, it's a great film. And I just love this scene where he goes to the ADL offices and they have these, like, m- this, these massive offices that are like so well-funded and all this stuff. And it's like, and he goes in there and he's like, so what do you guys do? You know, like, oh, well, you know, we, we monitor anti-Semitism 
you know, incidents come in from all over the country, and then we, you know, we send people out to investigate them, and we provide support, and we, you know, he's like, okay, great. Well, you know, I'm making this film, so you know, maybe we can find, you know, it's a documentary. You want to personalize it and find some cases. Um, you have Shamir. Sorry, someone just uh, corrected me. Not Avi Mograbi is another uh, filmmaker. Yoav Shamir is the filmmaker of, uh, of defamation. But anyway, so Yoav Shamir goes in and he's like, uh, um, you know, yeah, so maybe there's a case you could find me and we could go, I could fly out there and, you know, tell the story of this person and show the work you do. And they're like, hmm, well, yeah, let's check the files. And, like, and they have nothing. You know, they have nothing. They don't have any cases of, you know, like... Uh, the, the, and I like I'm on their email list because I like to see. And every day I'm getting fundraising emails from them, screaming about you know all the anti-Semitism. You have to give money to the ADL, and this is a uh, primarily a cover story for their real work, which is uh, uh, smearing and muzzling critics of Israel. And the, the the record of the ADL here is important because. During the Trump administration, when, uh, you know, there were white supremacists and anti-Semites brought into the White House, when Trump was, you know, openly uh, saying uh, horrific anti-Semitic stuff and, um, you know, like uh, uh, telling American Jews like that Netanyahu is your prime minister, you know, disgusting anti-Semitic stuff and praising the people in Charlottesville who are chanting, Jews will not replace us, and all this disgusting stuff. And the ADL was very, very quiet. They would almost never criticize Trump. And if they did so, it was always this kind of hand-wringing, like, well, maybe, Mr. President, you know, this isn't exactly the kind of language. Why? Because they don't want to piss Trump off because they loved what Trump was doing for Israel. They loved that he uh, recognized Jerusalem as the capital. They loved that he was defunding um, humanitarian aid for Palestinians. They loved that he was like forging ties between the most repressive uh, dictatorships like the United Arab Emirates and Israel. They loved all that. So they were prepared to sacrifice the struggle against real anti-Semitism in the United States in order to support Israel. So that's what people need to understand. I consider myself, I consider you, I consider many of the people watching this show, we, we fight against anti-Jewish bigotry because we, we fight against all kinds of bigotry. The ADL fights for Israeli bigotry against Palestinians and does so by ignoring and downplaying bigotry and anti-Semitism in the United States, and indeed fostering it by supporting racist policing, by uh, you know uh, fostering ties and exchanges between U.S. police and um, Isra uh, Israeli military and police. Okay, I am done with the ADL. Yeah. Well, I'm going to cancel my uh, subscription to their. Uh, I'm going to cancel my do automatically recurring. Oh, you're uh, not. Donation. You're not going to go to the gala this year. I should I'm go to the gala. Yeah. I should. I should have uh, Patreon raise it, fundraise to to yeah. attend to buy a dress that's suitable. But you know what you were just saying is so important. It's something that Netanyahu does also, which is you know cozy up to right wing uh, 
anti-Semitic, uh, anti-everything. I mean, bigoted alt-right leaders in Poland and Hungary and... And, and Ukraine. And so Ukraine, in, right. in Ukraine, the Azov Battalion, the literal uh, Sieg-heiling Nazis, uh, are armed by Israel. There was a story about it. Uh, we, we did a detailed story on this uh, in the Electronic Intifada a year or two ago. Um, and, but also Haaretz did a big story about how uh, Israel is funding the, you know, the most Nazi of the Nazi militia, I mean, arming the most Nazi of the Nazi militias in Ukraine. What more can I say? And Haaretz is an Israeli newspaper for people. It, it is. Know. It's sort of yeah. the lead. It's like the, the New York Times of Israel with the good and the bad connotations that that carries. Yeah, it was very, I mean, it was, I cracked up. I mean, it was terrible. But when Netanyahu was in Poland and they were passing that law that said you couldn't like, criti- you couldn't accuse Poland of being complicit in the Holocaust. And it was so awkward because I think Netanyahu thought that the Polish were like the Polish government was going to back down because he was there, but they didn't back down. And then you saw this fight, like the foreign minister was like, oh, the Polish people, they they like were breastfed. They were nursed on the milk of anti-Semitism. And it was this whole like, it was just a PR disaster. Yeah, I mean, the basic deal that Israel offers, uh, you know, various anti-Semites and right-wing governments uh, and movements in the United States. So, you know, whether it's the Christian right, people like John Hagee, you know, the founder of Christians United for Israel, or whether it's the, you know, Victor Victor Orban, the, the um, Hungarian, the the Hungarian prime minister who, you know, uh, rehabilitated like the wartime uh, Nazi collaborator leader of Hungary, um, you know, and 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 the the folks in Ukraine. Israel basically wa- uh, offers a laundry service for uh, anti-Semites and bigots and white supremacists that says, you know, if you give like massive unconditional support for Israel. Uh, we'll bring you over. We'll m- do a photo up at, uh, at Yad Vashem at the Holocaust Memorial. We'll tell everyone that you're great and that you know you're 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 one of the good guys. So that's what Israel does. It 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 offers. It's very cynical. It's very very cynical. Uh, but that that's you know that's that's how it uses the suffering and the persecution and the genocide of Jewish people as as political capital in its modern-day apartheid and ethnic cleansing and persecution of Palestinians. And it's, it's you know, it's, what can I say? I, I wake up uh, with my outrage refreshed uh, every yeah. morning. I just have to show you, since you mentioned Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum in Israel, I have to show people... I don't know if you saw this, but Donald Trump's message that he left in their book. I don't know if you heard about this, but when he went to visit it, this is the message he left. This is it. It is a great honor to be here with my, with all of my friends. So amazing. I will never forget. Well, he, he used the phrase there, never forget. You know, it's that, true. That's yeah. the phrase that, that, that is, yeah. Unbelievable. I'm surprised he didn't say Unbelievable. But you know they they don't they don't care they were they were happy with with uh, you know Trump's anti-Semitism and his his promotion of you know people like uh, Gorka the guy Sebastian Gorka oh, yeah. who was one of his advisors for the first year who was like a member of a literal Hungarian Nazi organization, but 
it was okay if you know if he was doing the right things that Israel wanted. It's so terrible. And you know the the disgusting thing about this campaign by Israel and its lobby to equate all criticism of Israel and all support for Palestinians with you know anti-Jewish bigotry is of course it's harmful to Palestinians but it's also harmful to Jewish people because one thing that Palestinians have always insisted on uh, is that uh, the Palestinian struggle for liberation is not a struggle against Jewish people. It is not a struggle against Israel because it's because it defines itself as a Jewish state. It's a struggle against colonization. You know, the Algerian struggle for liberation wasn't an anti-French struggle. You know, Palestinians are being colonized, and Israel is claiming to do it in the name of Jews. We as Palestinians always say, no, you don't act in the name of Jews. And we refuse to allow you to implicate all Jewish people in the crimes that you're committing against us. But that's what, you know, groups like the ADL and others do when they say any criticism of Israel is, uh, you know, inherently anti-Jewish, is they are trying to implicate all Jews in Israel's crimes. And that, I, I, I believe, uh, actually fosters anti-Semitism. Yeah, it does. And it's based on an old anti-Semitic trope that being Jewish is the same thing as being pro-Israel or that your identity is built around Israel. You know, the dual loyalty trope. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. We could talk all night, but I know you are an early, you got to go to, you're past your bedtime. Not quite, but Not quite. You know, I, do, I do start the day around 5 a.m. And so oh, wow. at this point, I'm like, I'm ready to to chill a little bit yeah. and then, and then uh, do it all again. But I understand you're having uh, Code Pink on next. Yes, yeah. Ar- Ariel yeah, Gold. Ariel so. Gold from Code Pink. Yeah, Code Pink, she's going to talk to us about the wonderful tree planting efforts that Israel's engaged in, that the Jewish National yeah, Fund is that, engaged that's in. So, that's so important. And, um, you know, so uh, thanks for having me on and thanks yes. for covering this. And, uh, um you know, let's do it again in another yeah. uh, 17 years or so. Yeah, or 17 weeks. Now well, I'm really going to book you for 17, 17 days. Weeks. 17 Anytime days, Anytime yeah. you like. Anytime. Yeah. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Katie. Yes, thank you so much, Ali. All right. Have a Take great care. night. Yeah. Too. Bye. Bye. Wow, that was so great. Ali Abunima, great guest. Guys, and we're only, that's only one part of the show. Let's bring on our next guest. So excited to bring her on, Ariel Gold. She is indeed from Code Pink, which is a great organization. It's a women-led grassroots organization working to end U.S. wars and militarism, support peace and human rights initiatives, and redirect our tax dollars into healthcare, education, green jobs, and other life-affirming programs. And Ariel Gold, before being banned from entering Israel in June of 2018, used to travel to the West Bank one to two times a year to work with Palestinian individuals and organizations on the ground in their struggle for freedom and justice. So without any further ado, let us bring in Ariel Gold. Hi, Ariel. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi. Nice to see you, Katie. You too. Yes. I've never met I haven't met Ali in person either, but I don't think I've met you in person. Maybe at a protest? You know, I think we met years ago briefly at the left forum. Oh, but okay. But for like five okay. yeah. minutes or something in New yeah. York. I think it was the left forum. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. Well, nice to see you again. Nice to see you. I want to have you on to talk about what you're up to with Code Pink. Also, I want to talk to you about, learn about what you did to get you banned from traveling. 
But first, I want to talk to you about this really important petition that you guys are working on at Code Pink that's about the Jewish National Fund's afforestation campaign. So can you just tell people about, and I have a great video from them. I'm torn. Should I, do you want to set it up and then we'll contrast that with the video they have? Or should we play the video first? Well, let me start by saying that afforestation as compared to reforestation is planting trees or a forest where there never was one before. This is, and the Jewish National Fund is carrying this out in the Nakab, which is southern Israel and is desert and really isn't meant to have a forest. And over a hundred, probably far more than a hundred now, um, Palestinian Bedouins, a third of them children who are, and they're all citizens of Israel, um, have been arrested in the past couple of weeks protesting this afforestation project because it's not really about putting in a forest. It's certainly not about as, um, as at least I was taught by as a kid, and you might have been as well too, Katie, because I, I know you grew up Jewish, about no, making not, the not desert bloom. No. <laughs> well, about making the desert bloom. It's certainly not about that. What it's about is the uh, another phase of ethnic cleansing, of removing Palestinians from their lands, um, and again, by the JNF, facilitated, brought to you by the JNF. And it is just the most woke washing, green washing. It's literally just putting ethnic cleansing in the form of planting trees. You kind of couldn't get more sinister than that. But can you tell people about what the JNF, the Jewish National Fund, is for those watching who don't know? Yeah, so so this has always been what the JNF has been about. The JNF was founded as far back as 1901 at, um, it was the Fifth Zionist Congress, and it was a call um a motion at that Congress to establish a fund to purchase land in historic Palestine to colonize, right? That was the purpose of what it was set up. It was arranged to raise money. And, um, you know, it was, I have to say, when I was a kid and my grandparents talked about it, it sounded really nice to me, like you plant a tree. Know if I happen to have a tree planted in my name somewhere over there, because you could plant a tree at somebody's birth or in remembrance of somebody, and it sounds really wonderful. So they would distribute these little blue boxes, which were in hundreds of thousands, still are, synagogues and homes and Jewish community centers to raise money for the greening of, of Israel. And it just sounds lovely. But from its very start, and um, Dr. Zogby talks about this in his book, Invisible Victims, from its very start, it was about exclusivity and it was about ethnic cleansing, about removing uh, Palestinians from their lands. And, um, you know, it began, so so they began just buying up land, like any Palestinian they could get to some land before Palestinians started to be like, it feels like something funky is um, going on here. And then in the years leading up to the Nakba, which was the establishment of the state of Israel and the expulsion of over 750,000 Palestinians, um, the JNF meticulously charted topography, roads, land, water resources, and profiled every single member of the Palestinian community by age, by political affiliation, and by their hostility to the Zionist project. These are known as the village files. And so 
during 1948, which um, Jewish communities often celebrate as this miracle, this this idea that this like ragtag army of these Jewish, you know, went in and managed to win their land. Well, they actually used these village files. So they had this complete map out. So these uh, Jewish militias, um, so that when they went in and they burned villages, carried out massacres and drove people from their homes and lands, the JNF had supplied the materials to do that. And then after that, um, around the 1950s, the JNF, this is when they used their, well, we've raised money to plant trees. They started planting trees all over the place. Coincidentally, they planted all the trees on the ruins of the Palestinian villages. And the aim of that was to prevent the Palestinian refugees from being able to return to their homes. So they have had these um, sinister, these sinister activities behind the idea of tree planting from the very start. And they're doing that right now in the Negev. And they've mostly planted non-native trees, mostly pine and eucalyptus, um, which are a tinderbox for forest fires, which if you followed, um, you know, if you followed this going on in the past few years, there's been a number of these forest fires. There's also a video we can look at. This is a good explainer of it. There's no better gift to give or receive than one that can connect you with nature and your homeland. That's why JNF has made it easier than ever to connect with Israel on a spiritual, emotional, and physical level, all while doing it online. JNF has made it super easy for you to order your tree certificate online. Just go to jnf.org slash trees, pick which special occasion it's for, whether a birth, bar mitzvah, just order your tree online and let's get planting. Every tree counts. As a memorial to a loved one, as a tribute for a special occasion, as a link to your heritage, as a link to the land of Israel, to help the environment and reduce your carbon footprint. Reduce your carbon footprint. What could be better? And these absolutely do not reduce your carbon footprint. As I said, the uh, pine tree, it's been referred to as a keg keg of gasoline for a fire. And that's how it works because it... um, the pine tree, uh, because it provides so much shade, you don't have other uh, plants underneath. And so when the fire starts, it just takes over. And then there's eucalyptus trees, which uh, I know the first time that I, I visited um, Palestine and Israel um, with, oh gosh, what's the name? It used to be called Interfaith Peace Builders, and now it's... Um, Oh, goodness, I'm so embarrassed. I can't remember the name. All right, I see you Googling. It's like on the tip of my tongue. And it's a much better name now. Something like... Eyewitness Eyewitness Palestine. Palestine. Yes, so the first time I went there um, with them... We, we went to the, the Nakab or Negev desert and met with some of the Bedouin tribes, the El Arakib tribe, who's had their village destroyed over a hundred times because Israel is just hell-bent on getting them off this land. Well, they had been planting eucalyptus trees um, right there in, in, in the, in the Nakab. And I was familiar with them because of uh, the University of Berkeley 
has a bunch of eucalyptus trees and they've been trying to get rid of them because eucalyptus trees, they're great in Australia where the JNF brought them from, but in places where they don't belong, they interfere with the decomposition of other materials and their leaves actually, um, if, if they're planted where they don't belong, create like a poison in the soil. So what better way for Israel in the name of uh, environmentalism, planting trees to prevent Palestinians from being able to grow their own food? And the Bedouin uh, people, these are, these are nomadic communities. They move around and they graze their animals and they live off the lands. And what Israel has been trying to do with them is they have been trying to move them into basically public housing, into like housing projects and move them into uh, the Israeli economy, right? Similar to what they've done in the West Bank, employing uh, Palestinians as workers, building the very settlements that are taking their land from them. And they are, they're really determined to do this with the, the Bedouin community. So they refuse to recognize the villages that they build, and then they destroy them, and then they plant trees that poison the land, and then they put in a forest. And they've also been doing this excessively in East Jerusalem. If you go to East Jerusalem, you'll see uh, the public parks, you'll see, you know, brought to you by the uh, JNF. And, you know, also in, in East Jerusalem, the the uh, Jewish National Fund has been partnering um, since the 1980s with the settlement organization Hemuta, which is their mission is to uh, Judaize East Jerusalem. So the same process that we see taking place in Sheikh Jarrah, removing Palestinians from their homes and demolishing their homes. That's what the JNF, because they uh, create, they uh, get ownership of these homes. They, they, uh, own more than 10% of the land or manage more than 10% of the land in Israel. And so then they evict the Palestinian inhabitants who've been living there, just like what we're seeing in Sheikh Jarrah. Right. Now, that's so interesting. I didn't even realize. So like, not I, I kind of assumed it was just like gross and they were kind of doing something okay, like good for the environment, but terrible for humanity. But it's even like worse because they're not even planting them in a way that's good for them. I mean, that is the ultimate metaphor. Yes. Like we should make, we should create a PR crisis by getting some like super right-wing Zionists, but who are like environmentalists to get mad about this. We need to cause a war. There, there, there is some of that going on in Israel, but it's still based around what trees should be planted and whether the eucalyptus trees should be taken out or, you know. But the, both the eucalyptus and the pine are recognized as non-native invasive species. Right. So there are like green, like eco-friendly racists there who are upset with the tree choice. There are. We got to exploit that divide somehow. Um, I wanted to know, uh, oh, let's go to the, before I forget, let's go to that, uh, let's sign the petition. So you guys have a great petition. We do, um, yes. It's let me share. I got the screen share. I got it right here. All right, tell the JNF to cease and desist, it says. Absolutely. We at least in this very moment need to stop what's happening in the Negev, in, in the Nakab. We need to, you know, preserve these lands. The Hebrew word that's used by Israel, right? And then one's, it's the same thing, but one's a Hebrew word, one's the Arabic word, right? 
Yes, yes. And it's otherwise known, if you're looking at the map, it's southern Israel. It's it's desert area. Um, that is, you know, the Bedouin people. And a third of the people who have been arrested protesting this, and it's uh, Palestinians as well as Jewish-Israeli solidarity activists, but a third of them have been children. And women and girls have been taking up leadership in these protests. And it's ongoing. And it is at least making Israeli news. And we're looking to raise that up further because I would love to see the State Department have to respond to this. I'm sure it would be with at most concern, but absolutely the uh, Jewish National Fund, and because they are so integrated with the Israeli government, the Israeli government itself needs to halt this project and um, allow the Palestinian Bedouins to live on their land according to their customs. So this is Dear Secretary of State Antony Blinken, we the undersigned write to you to ask that you publicly call on the Jewish National Fund and State of Israel to immediately halt their afforestation activities in southern Israel, the Negev slash Nakab, on land used by Bedouin Palestinian communities for agriculture. The project's aims and consequences are the displacement of the communities from their lands. The destructive actions of the JNF are nothing new. Founded in 1901, the JNF was established to buy and develop land for Jewish settlement in Palestine. In the years leading up to the establishment of the State of Israel, the JNF played a central role in the plans to expel Palestinians from their lands. They meticulously charted topography, and this is what you you went over. And you, you talked about how it was village files. These documents became a crucial military tool for Jewish militias who in 1948 burned villages, carried out massacres, and drove around 750,000 Palestinians out of their homes and villages, making them refugees. After the war of 1948, or Nakba catastrophe, as Palestinians refer to it, the JNF planted pine trees on the ruins of destroyed Palestinian villages to prevent Palestinian refugees from returning to their homes. From its earliest days, the JNF registered as a 501c3 charitable organization, raised money abroad with its Blue Box campaign. In 2018 alone, it raised $72 million. Jesus Christ. That's a lot of money. That's so much money. That's insane. After Israel occupied East Jerusalem in 1967, the JNF, through its subsidiary Hamnuta, assisted in seizing Palestinian properties that had belonged to Jews before 1948. One example is the purchasing of properties in the East Jerusalem neighborhoods of Shechara and Silwan, where Palestinian families were resettled after being displaced from their West Jerusalem homes in 1948. The JNF today owns more than 10% of the land in Israel and systematically discriminates against Palestinian citizens of Israel who make up about 20% of Israel's population, making it extremely difficult for Palestinian citizens of Israel to gain access to state lands for residential, commercial, agricultural, or other uses. In the southern Israel Negev slash Nakab desert, the Israeli government has been working overtime to evict Palestinian Bedouin communities who are citizens of Israel. The village of Al-Araqib has been destroyed more than 100 times because it's located on Bedouin agricultural lands where the JNF is now carrying out its afforestation slash ethnic cleansing project. Throughout January 2021, Palestinian Bedouins, about a third of them children, have been arrested protesting the JNF's afforestation's ethnic cleansing project. They need your help. Please use your position as Secretary of State to pressure Israel and the Jewish National Fund to cease their afforestation project in the Negev, Nakab, and other efforts to displace Palestinians from their homes and lands. Sincerely. Okay, so how do I do? How do I sign this? So sign here. Sign it right up there with "Will you sign?" Yep. And for anybody who's watching, this is code www.codepink.org/jnf. 
But everyone do this with me. Everyone do this. Let's, let's get this petition up. It's at 3178. We got to get it to 5,000. Yes, absolutely. Let's do it. All right. Signed. Great. All right. I signed it. And it looks like some members of Congress are actually Betty McCollum from Minnesota introduced the Palestinian Children and Families Act, which states that the U.S. will not fund the Israeli government's imprisonment and torture of Palestinian children, theft and destruction of Palestinian homes and property, or any further annexation of Palestinian land. That would be good. She's a good one. Yes, it's been introduced a few times, and it collects a few more uh, co-sponsors each time, and we're continuing to grow it. And after the uh, recent home demolition in Sheikh Jarrah, I saw uh, AOC uh, share it and said, this is why we need this legislation. And absolutely, it's why we need this legislation, because the reality is that our tax dollars, U.S. tax dollars, the $3.8 billion a year that we give to Israel, is going to the activities of the JNF to remove the Bedouins from their lands, the uh, arrest of Palestinian children there as they try to protest, and is going to the demolition of Palestinian homes. And this piece of legislation seeks to end U.S. participation in that. And how did you get banned from Israel? What did you do that got you banned from them? Well, I have to say that it actually took um, a fair amount of effort because I am a Jewish American. I'm a white Jewish American with ties to Israel, with a, a history in the land, with family there. So, you know, uh, I was recently on Jim Zogby's weekly webinar series, and they were talking about the U.S. visa program and uh, having people share their stories about getting detained at Ben Gurion Airport or at Allenby Bridge, and, you know, people had done nothing. And, like, we're just going to visit family and would be detained and deported. Well, and these were, you know, Arabs, um, Palestinians, or even non-Palestinian Arabs. James Ogbe used to get heavily harassed when he would enter. Well, me being a Jewish American, American, even though I... he was He's a Lebanese American, yeah, but me being a people, Jewish yeah. American... Right. Yeah, even though I work for Code Pink and, um, you know, have a, a high profile of that, it, it actually took a lot of times. So I had um, I had never gone, uh, though I do have family there and um, my family were proud supporters of the Zionist movement very, very early on before it was popular around the mm -hmm. time of the founding of the JNF. Um, so, but I hadn't gone until I was Malton until I already had children. And I went with Eyewitness Palestine and was just horrified, you know, shocked. And um, anyway, after that, I started going once or twice a year to uh, work with Palestinians on the ground. And in, um, I think it was 2000 and. 14, 13 or 14, I took both of my children. They were in between their bar and bat mitzvahs. My son was um, 13 and my daughter had her 12th birthday there. And we lived with Palestinian families in the West Bank for uh, three weeks and attended protests and went to Hebron. And my daughter was traumatized and we kept a blog the whole time. And I made my children, because I'd taken them out of school, I made them uh, write about it in, in the blog. And so, we, you know, I went with kind of these purposes and with like public blogs, but I would just skate right in. I remember my kids and I went to, to the airport to fly out and we smelled like 
tear gas and this and that. We had a suitcase full of kufias and no problems, just no problems at all. Our last name is Gold, and which is a Jewish name. Um, and then uh, there was a year that I finally got arrested in the West Bank, uh, attending a protest. It was sort of an it was an accidental arrest. I just kind of got like scooped up with um, the rest of folks. So when I went to leave that time, uh, my my passport automatically dinged. It, you know, it gave a big rex, and they came over. They said, "Oh, this must just be a mistake." <laughs> Let's run it again. Let's run it again. And they kept thinking it must be a mistake. And finally, they, oh, okay. All right. But that's fine. You just go through. And after that, um, it always would go off because I then had a police record there. But for years after that, it would go off and I'd have to go sit for a bit. And sometimes they wouldn't interrogate me and sometimes they would interrogate me and I'd say oh I'm so sorry you know I promised to behave this time they say we promised to behave yes I promised to behave and then I would go in and do whatever again I unveiled a banner at the uh western wall the hotel that's uh, in support of uh the boycott divestment and sanctions movement and I would go into through the through the airport and they would say what's this thing you did with a banner at the hotel and I said oh I don't know I don't remember and they'd say okay go ahead go ahead you know you're fine um when I finally um got banned it was a uh a coordinated campaign by the settlers in Hebron to have me deported and banned from the country and then um they did deport me in, in 2018 when I tried to enter, and um, it made quite a bit of headlines there, which the deportation of Palestinian Americans uh, does not make those types of headlines at all. Because this is, quite frankly, a racist, discriminatory state, and that's how it works. And they are ra- they're openly racist. Like, there's really, it's, this isn't something that they hide. Right. What changed you? You say you came from a like a, a family that was Zionist back in the day, like pre-1948 Zionist. So how did you have your come to, no pun intended, Jesus moment? I mean, he was a Jew. Yes. He was a Jew. So it's definitely yeah. come to Jesus moment. Well, it was a combination. Uh, that was my father's side of the family. And so I was very supportive of Israel, or I thought we made the desert bloom, and I had fantasies of moving there. But on the other hand, uh, my parents were divorced, and my mother was a nuclear activist in the 1980s, and um, we spent our time at, at peace walks and demonstrations. So as I came to learn more, when I got older... You were the product of an interfaith marriage. Well, no, I was Jewish as well. But, I know, I meant, um, I meant like yeah, interpolitical yeah. faith. Yeah, mixed marriage. Yeah, kind of, yeah. kind of, yeah. So as I came to learn more, I was just, you know, horrified, like just horrified. And I remember trying to tell some of my friends who were Jewish at the time, like family, friends or family. I said, oh my God, did you know this is so horrible? We have to do something about it. And they were like, no. Right. Yeah. <laughs> just no. So... Yeah. Um, yeah, for me, that part was kind of simple, but I have to say, like, as I learned about it, it was crushing for me. And I, I, you know, I was, um, devastated in other ways. I, I really didn't conceive until I saw it with my own eyes, how horrific it could actually be. You know, I had read and read, but actually seeing, um, children, young children shot with tear gas, you know, watching that racism up close, 
shocked and horrified me as, as is happening with, with young Jews. Yeah. And I'm happy to say that my daughter, who's uh, 19 and a freshman in college, she's, um, you know, very proud anti-Zionist and, and it's no longer so rare. Right. right? For her, this is, yeah, she kind of keeps track of her Jewish camp friends. Like, well, there's only a few of them left that still haven't come over to the, (laughs) yeah. To the anti-Zionist side. Yeah. Yeah, things are really changing. I mean, of course, then the question is, how does that change facts on the ground? And that's like the next step. But it is, it is, I think, a necessary precondition for the other stuff to happen. Yeah, because right now on the ground, it hasn't changed. And the trees that the JNF is planting, the homes that are being demolished, these are the facts on the ground, the settlements being built. It's awful. Well, Thank you so much. Anything else you want to mention, talk about that that you're up to, that Code Pink is up to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know you were talking at the beginning of the show about the situation with Ukraine, and we are up in arms about that. We did a webinar today with uh, Larry Wilkerson, who's uh, he, he was chief of staff for Colin Powell, uh, Colin Powell while he was secretary of state uh, to talk about the situation in Ukraine and the reality that NATO should never have continued to exist after the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the the uh, horror of Biden putting our troops on high alert. And we also have petitions and actions uh, to contact your member of Congress to stop this war, which is, you know, quite close to us. Uh, let's see if we can find it. So if you go to codepink.org slash Ukraine. And I'm going to make sure, you know what, by the time we finish, I'm going to make sure that both of our Ukraine actions are up on the main okay. part of our well, webpage. Oh, there's one of them. There there's one of okay. them. All right. Condition. There we go. go there's one fight. of them. Yes. So the URL would be codepink.org slash Ukraine underscore Congress. Yay. Okay, here we go. I like yes, her. No, there we go. I used to do Russian Ukrainian folk dance, by the way. True story. I'll oh. find the photos. Yeah. So oh, I wore one of those fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Don't let Biden go to war with Russia over Ukraine. This is urgent. President Biden has just ordered 8,500 U.S. troops to be on heightened alert for possible deployment to Eastern Europe, exacerbating a conflict that could easily result in war between the world's two most heavily armed nuclear states, the United States and Russia. We must immediately demand that NATO, the U.S., Russia, and Ukraine pursue vigorous diplomacy for a negotiated solution. Congress must pressure President Biden not to go to war with Russia over Ukraine. Congress must demand that NATO, the U.S., Russia, and Ukraine pursue vigorous diplomacy for a negotiated solution. Contact your senators and representatives now. So that's another one you should sign. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and stay tuned with us. We're going to be continuing uh, to follow this issue closely and work on legislation in Congress, all kinds of things. We're, we're quite a, awesome. quite concerned. Yeah. Yeah. Really scary. Very scary times. Very, very, very scary times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ariel. This has been great. Come back. Keep up the great work. Absolutely. Yeah. And people can find you on Twitter, Ariel Elise Gold. So everyone knows. And thanks so much for joining. Yeah. Keep up your work as well. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll see you next time. Bye, Ariel. And that was it. That was great. Two great interviews. I hope you enjoyed that. Make sure you become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Belated happy birthday to Phil Winter. Happy birthday, Phil. 
make sure you like these streams whenever they're happening. Just like it. It's an easy way to give back and also fight back against YouTube's algorithm. Make sure you become members on YouTube and you get cool badges, cool emojis. And rate and review us if you listen to the podcast or even if you don't, rate and review us on iTunes. So just give us a nice review, drop us some stars. And we will see you Sunday, Sunday evening at 7 p.m. Thank you all so much who showed up. Thank you to Tyler and Brad. And uh, this has been the Katie Helper Show. And we will see you on Sunday. Bye, everyone. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.